0: holy God hates sin and he will rightly judge those who reject him and refuse to repent from their sin. God is merciful and intimate with humble people who hate their sin and value him above all else. Welcome to
1: the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9:30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock.
0: Fellow students, if you'd be so kind, open your Bible to 2 Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles 34, today we're concluding our study of the monarchy of Israel. We delineate the biographies of Israel's kings and one queen. Upon the death of, of King Solomon in 931, the unified kingdom split into two parts. The northern ten tribes became known as the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern two tribes became known as the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel rejected Yahweh, the God of Israel, worshipped idols, and engaged in gross wickedness from scratch, from the very beginning. After two centuries of warnings, 209 years, God brought down the Assyrian army to invade, capture, and deport them. They're called the Ten Lost Tribes. The Ten Northern Tribes were deported and exiled from their homeland and never to return. That occurred in 722 B.C., so about 200 and and 10 years or so after the division of the kingdom. So the southern kingdom, the two southern tribes known as the kingdom of Judah, was only marginally better. The northern kingdom of Israel had 20 kings, 100% of them were evil, all of them wicked. The southern kingdom had 19 kings and one queen, four followed God fully, four were a mixed bag of good and evil, and spiritually speaking, the rust is bad to the bone. So you have the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is a lot of how life works, right? You know people like that. So 134 years later, in 586 BC, God brought the Babylonian Empire down to invade Judah. Three different occasions, and in 586, the third and final invasion, uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and took them into a 70 year captivity exactly as God had been prophesying for centuries. If you disobey me, here's what happens. So these biographies of kings, they they, they give us the ability to see real people in real time make real decisions, and we get to see the consequences of how those decisions reverberated in their own personal life, in the lives of their families, in the lives of the kingdom. So you don't have to make the same bad decisions they made. You can look and say, I don't have enough room on my skull for all the knots I'm going to collect by making the bad decisions myself. I can look at the knots on somebody else's skull and say, I wonder how they collected that scar tissue. Maybe I shouldn't do what they did. That's one of the reasons God wrote the Old Testament and gave us these biographies. So our subject today is going to be kind of a welcome relief. His name is Josiah. He's the great grandson of good King Hezekiah, He's the grandson of the worst king in Judah's history, Manasseh, who was evil. And he's also the son of evil king Ammon. He was one of the very best kings Judah ever had. He reigned 31 years from 640 to 609 BC. He lived in a period of time where power was transitioning on a rather global scale. Near the end of his reign in the ancient Near East, power transitioned from the Assyrian Empire, which was on the declension, to the Babylonian Empire, which was on the ascension. Nineveh was conquered by Babylon in 612, three years before Josiah's death, and the Assyrian Empire fell in 609 BC, the exact year of Josiah's death. So let's pick up the narrative in 2 Chronicles 34, beginning in verse 1. The the, the first seven verses here really give us a summary of his life in seven verses. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father David, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. They tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down. Also the asherim, the carved images, and the molten images he broke in pieces, and ground to powder, and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, and even as far as Nephtali. And their surrounding ruins, he also tore down the altars, beat the ashram and the carved images into powder, chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Judah, Jerusalem. So here's our first principle. Repentance is more than sorrow over sin. It is a ruthless and relentless war against sin. Let me repeat that. Repentance is more than sorrow over sin. It is a ruthless and relentless war against sin. I want you to know that when God says, Josiah did what was right, the standard for that definition is what? In the sight of the Lord. So God's perfect character is the eternal standard of right and wrong. Because he is the definition of what right is. God's assessment of Josiah's life was that he did right in God's sight. It says that Josiah did not become distracted from following God. He said he didn't turn to the right, he didn't turn to the left. He stayed focused on following the Lord his entire life. And God defines what right looks like in the very next sentence. There's two words I want you to pay attention to. One, it says... He began to seek God when he was 16 years old, the eighth year of his reign. So this is an internal pursuit of the Lord. And number two, there's an external action. He began to purge Israel of idolatry and evil. So 16 years old, he began to seek the Lord himself internally. Four years later, age 20, he began to do something about that and purge Judah from all the idols that his grandfather Manasseh and his father Ammon had set up. Now the word purge is not a passive word. The word purge is an aggressive word. It means to remove, to clean out, to exterminate, to purify. So this was a very, when you're purging of evil, um, evil doesn't go quietly. Have you noticed that evil is kind of tenacious in your life? And when I use the word exterminate, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about warfare against the evil in your life. Now, God hates religious hypocrisy. And Judah was a nation of hypocrites. When God's people say that they follow God, but they live just like the people that reject God, the watching world concludes that your God is not worth worshiping. I mean, after all, you live like just like we live. And if your God can't fix your life, why would I be interested in following him? That was Judah, and that's much of us in our contemporary world today. The story is told of Alexander the Great, the Greek general, as you recall, conquered most of the known world in in less than 10 years, died at 33. One night, he was walking through his army camp, they were on maneuvers, and he came upon a soldier on guard duty who had fallen asleep. That was a capital offense. Back in the day, the general had the right to pour kerosene on you and light you on fire for that. So it was a very serious offense. Alexander woke him up, and when the soldier stood trembling before him, Alexander demanded, what's your name? And the soldier said, my name is Alexander. Alexander asked him again, what is your name? The soldier said, Alexander, sir. Alexander turned red in the face with anger, and he said, they either change your conduct or change your name. When you read the extensive wickedness that Judah was practicing, it's easy to conclude they needed either a name change or a conduct change. We, who bear the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, need to act like he acts, or stop bringing shame on his name by calling ourselves Christian and then living like the world lives. If you look at how the average Christian, quote-unquote, lives in America, apart from attending church on Sundays whenever it's convenient, there's not a great deal of difference between how the average Christian in America lives and the world's behavior. In 1986, John Bon Jovi wrote a song titled, You Give Love a Bad Name. (laughs) Some of you know that song. Shot through the heart, and you're to blame. Darling, you give love a bad name. An angel's smile is what you sell. You promise me heaven, then put me through hell. Some of you have been there, done that, right? The truth is, the nation of Israel had been giving God a bad name for about 300 years. Actually, close to 700. At Mount Sinai, when God gave them His covenant, He outlined the terms and conditions of what it was to have a covenant with the living God. It was really his marriage contract with the nation of Israel. If you obey me and follow my law, then you will be my special people. You will be a nation of priests. You will be my representatives on planet Earth. You will be my ambassadors. You will be my people. You will belong to me, and I will be your God, and I will belong to you. That was the marriage covenant between God and Israel. And Israel swore that they would keep faithful to the Lord alone and love Him alone and stay faithful to Him. And in reality, they have been committing spiritual adultery with other gods, that's by the way, idolatry, that's spiritual adultery, for 700 years. God's been very patient, but this nation has been giving God a bad name. Not only are they spiritual adulterers, but the surrounding nations really thought that God approved of their idol worship. As a matter of fact, they thought that God was the source of their idol worship. Their sexual immorality, their social injustice. It was a corrupt culture, and yet they claimed to belong to God. They gave God a bad name. They'd been dragging his holy reputation through a moral cesspool, and God had had enough. So beginning at age 16... Josiah began to seek the Lord personally, and then the Lord cleansed his own heart, and beginning at age 20, based on his own personal cleansing from sin, Josiah turns that into action. It says that he personally went throughout the land of Judah, and even northern Israel. Of course, Israel has been taken captive 100 years ago, so there's no northern Israel there. There's the land, and he's on a mission, and it's not a peace mission. It's a mission of warfare. It's warfare against evil and idolatry, and it's ruthless. It says that Josiah personally oversaw the destruction of all the idols, the statues, the temples, the shrines, the incense altar, the carved images, everything that the nation used to commit spiritual adultery. Idolatry was shot through this culture. The text indicates that there was an enormous amount of altars and shrines and temples to destroy. By the way, when they use this phrase, digging up the bones, when you were buried back then, they buried you, and your bones don't decay as fast as your flesh does, so your bones are still there as evidence that you lived. When you dig up the bones of someone, you're basically erasing their memory. You're basically saying, I'm destroying any evidence that you ever existed. So he dug up the bones of these Baal's priests, and burn them on the Baal altars, which was, I'm obliterating your memory. It profanes the dead, but it also defiles the altar. It can never be used again because dead people have been affiliated with that item. Josiah is on a warpath against sin. First in his own heart, and then in the nation at large. He understood that if you tolerate sin, it grows like cancer until it will destroy you. We live in a culture very tolerant of sin. The sin of idolatry was so entrenched in Judah that it was normal. Think about it. If they'd been worshiping idols for 300 years, the vast majority of them didn't know anything else. I mean, this country's only been around for 250 years. And we take for granted how we live in this culture, and our great-grandparents would be astonished at how we live. They would be horrified. For the Israelites, idolatry was normal, and worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, in the temple as God had commanded, that was abnormal. That was unusual. That didn't happen very often. You know, in our culture, it's true today, sin is usual. Righteousness is unusual. Sin is normal. You know, righteousness is not normal. For God's people, this is exactly backward. For us, righteousness is supposed to increase and sin is supposed to decrease. In the culture we have, sin is increasing and righteousness is decreasing. That's why God's people are so out of step with the culture and God's called us to be salt and light in a decaying, dying culture. God's people in Judah have been practicing more sin than righteousness for generations. That's why it says that Josiah spent months cleansing the nation. How do you deal with sin? Well, 1 John 1.9 says what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't stop there. Confession is the first step. Confession is agreeing with God about our sin. The Greek is homo legale. It means saying what God says. What does God say about sin? It is an affront against him. It is rebellion against him. So we agree with God and we ask for his forgiveness. And God responds by forgiving us from the penalty of sin because Jesus already paid the penalty when he died on the cross in our place. However, God says, now that you have confessed your sin and I have forgiven you, What did he say to the woman caught in adultery? Go and sin no more. So it's confession first, and now it's combat. Now you have to go to war. And we have the ability to do that because we have God the Holy Spirit living in us. We have divine supernatural power where we are no longer slaves to sin. We have the ability to, to coin a phrase, just say no to sin. You have the ability, because the Holy Spirit lives within you, to not sin. I didn't say you're practicing that. I'm saying you have the supernatural ability to do it. Romans 6.11 is very direct on this point. Even so, consider yourselves, think about yourselves, evaluate yourselves to be what? Dead to sin, which means non-responsive to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, verse 12. Therefore... Do not let sin reign or rule or control your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, its desires, its leading, its temptations. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God for... Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin wants to master you. Sin wants to make you its slave. Our culture believes Satan's lie that sin sets you free. No one's going to tell me what to do. Oh, you're obeying your body and following its lust. You're a slave to your own lust, and you've been doing that since you were born, and you're free. You're not free. Ultimately, without the power of God, we cannot conquer sin. Jesus said what? He was talking about the vine and the branches. He said, without me, you can do nothing, not a zip zilch. You have no power to combat sin apart from me. But since you are remaining in me and I have come inside you through the Holy Spirit, you know I have the power of the living God living in you and you can successfully wage war against sin in your own lives as long as you depend on the power of God for victory. Colossians 3.5 says, therefore, he's talking about, now that you have been raised with Christ, put to death. That's not a kind word. That says exterminate, destroy, murder, kill. Put to death what belongs to what? Your worldly nature, your sin nature. And he gives you some examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So he's not just talking about asking for forgiveness and confessing sin, you must do that. And that is forgiveness by God. But we have a responsibility then to go to war with sin. How frequently? All day, every day. Moment by moment, right? It's the opposite of tolerating sin. It's hating sin. It's, to coin a phrase, terminating it with extreme prejudice, right? Our problem is, Our flesh likes to sin. That's why we have the battle. We have the new nature of Jesus Christ living in us, but we still, while we're in the flesh, we have this body which is subject to temptation. And Satan will use that body to tempt us to sin. And this is a daily choice. Every moment, I'm either, I'm always submitting, by the way, I'm either submitting to God or I'm submitting to sin. But I am submitting one way or the other, and I choose, moment by moment, who am I going to be obedient to? I hate to break this to you, but this battle will never be over until you die. Now, when you are in Jesus' presence, you are free forever from sin, Satan, temptation, lust, sin, death, all of them. That's one of the great joys of leaving here. Your body no longer is your problem, right? Right? Because your nature is changed and you are free from not just the penalty of sin, not just the power of sin, but when you're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're free from the very presence of sin. It's no longer available to you. So this is Josiah giving us a picture of, number one, his own heart being cleansed, and then he moved that into action to cleanse the nation and repair the house of the Lord, verse 8. Now, in the 18th year of his reign... He's now 26. When he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Masai, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law given to Moses. Verse 18. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, quote, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahiakam the son of Shaphan, Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the scribe, and Aziah the king's servant, saying, quote, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book which has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us, because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Here's the principle. Disregarding God's word leads to disaster. This is his world, and his promises will surely come to pass whether you believe them or not. Disregarding God's word leads to disaster. This is his world, and his promises will surely come to pass whether you believe them or not. So Josiah not only wanted to get rid of evil in the land, he wanted to honor God and restore the, the right worship of God in the temple as God commanded. But there's a problem. The temple has been thrashed and trashed for decades. Literally, close probably 60 years. It needs to be repaired. It needs to be restored. And while cleaning out the temple, they found the book of the law of Moses. This is ironic. God's people have lost God's word inside God's house, (laughs) and apparently they haven't missed it in 60 years. That's how comfortable they were living without God's input. They didn't care what God had to say, and they lived their life without thinking about God. I talk to people from time to time to time, they'll say something like, well, I'm not angry with God, I just find him irrelevant. That's called warfare, but that's exactly how they're living, right? As long as life kind of motors along like they think it should, life is all good. The problem is, at some point in time, it's going to end, and then you are going to stand face-to-face with your Creator and give an account of your life. See, Israel, Judah, in this case, they really didn't think that God's promises applied to them. They thought they could live exactly like they lived, deep in idolatry, deep in sin, and they didn't think it would have any consequences. Here's why. They thought that God was not going to judge them because they were God's special people. How many people call themselves Christians and believe the same thing? See, our contemporary culture disregards God as well. Today, people either, one, don't believe God exists, or, number two, if he does exist, he's really impotent. He's kind of a powerless person. They view him that when someone says, the good Lord, oh, the good Lord will... You're telling me you don't have a concept of God that is holy and righteous and omnipotent. You say, well, God is kind of my favorite uncle. When they start using terms like the man upstairs, which is blasphemy, of course, they're saying that God is this kind old man who's going to overlook my sin because deep down, what? I am a, quote, good person. On what standard of goodness? Not God's standard of goodness because God's standard of goodness is perfect. What they're telling you is their God is not the God of the Bible. And I use that frame extremely explicitly. When you talk about God, always use the phrase, the God of the Bible, because the Bible tells us who he is. You don't get to make up God in your own image. The content of who God is, is written in black and white. He's the creator of the universe, and he not only created the universe, he wrote the rules for how his universe operates. He makes the rules and keeps his promises. And his promises always take place in real-time history. And they take place whether or not you believe them. They take place whether you not obey them. And they take place whether or not you even like them. So Judah, who has no excuse, they grew up with the law and knew it, They have gone almost 60 years without the law. They're living life the way they want to live. They've neglected God. They've rejected God. And uh, they're now going to experience the consequences. Apparently, as near as we can tell, Manasseh, which is Josiah's grandfather, had destroyed virtually all the copies of the law. This may have been the last one. We don't know. But they didn't have any other ones. It's interesting that God always preserves his word, though. He wants to be known. He, so he allowed his word to be found, read, and obeyed. And when they say the word of God, they're talking about the book of the law. That's are talking about the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And Shaphan, the scribe, probably was reading in Deuteronomy 28. If you want an excellent passage to talk about choices and consequences, Deuteronomy 28 will give you an extensive list of God's promises. Blessings for obedience... Cursings for disobedience. Now, Josiah's response should be our response. When Josiah heard all that God had promised, he tore his clothes, which was a sign of grief and a sign of extreme sorrow. He understood that Judah's problems had come about because they had rejected their God. He understood that God was perfectly just. He understood that God was keeping his promises to judge his people because they broke his covenant, right? Right? As soon as he read God's word, he wanted to understand what he meant and what he should do about it, so he sent his staff to the prophetess Huldah, verse 22. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had told went to Huldah the prophetess, verse 23. She said to them, quote, Thus says the Lord the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants even all the curses written in the book which they have read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured on in this place and it shall not be quenched. Here's the principle. Holy God hates sin and he will rightly judge those who reject him and refuse to repent from their sin. Holy God hates sin, and he will rightly judge those who reject him, and refuse to repent from their sin. So, what is sin? Sin is a lack of conformity to the character of God and the law of God. It is human rebellion against their infinite personal God. 1 John 3 gives us one word. It says, Sin is lawlessness. In other words, God gives us the law and is our rebellion against it. You want to see the initial example of sin? It is in Genesis 3, right? It is rebellion against God's authority. What did God tell Adam and Eve? He told them explicitly to do not do what? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have free access to everything else in my creation. There's only one thing you cannot do. And of course, what did they want to do? The one thing that God told them not to do. So first in their thoughts and then in their actions they chose to number one disbelieve God and then to disobey him and disobey something that he had explicitly told them not to do. It was an intentional transgression. That word transgression, another frame for that is the word trespass. So it is literally transgression or trespass is breaking through a barrier that God has placed. God says you shall not do this Trespassing, sin, transgression is breaking through that barrier. It's breaking through the boundary line. It's a rejection of God, and it's a rejection of God's will. And God had warned Israel about their disobedience 700 years earlier. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes, with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Summary, verse 20. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke, in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed, and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. I'm amazed at some people who can't figure out why their life doesn't work. When they're in direct rebellion to everything God said. And they break his rules, they break his laws, and they can't figure out how come life is so screwed up. Well, he wrote it down. He gave you the operator's manual. Here's how you should live, right? If you do what the operator's manual said, uh, you will not have a perfect life, but you will have the power of God in your life to support what you're doing. Now, Deuteronomy 28, the first 14 verses are blessings. Very specific. The last 53 verses are specific and graphic curses for disobedience. Very specific. This will curl your hair. Don't read this late at night. You won't be able to sleep. But Israel knew all this, and they chose to rebel against God anyway. Here's the part that is, should terrify you. It's the last five words. My wrath will be poured out this place, and it shall not be quenched. You know what that means? It means there is a point of no return. There is a point of no return. When God says, I will surely bring judgment on you, regardless of your remorse or your repentance going forward. And you know something? As a parent, you know this. There does come a point where you absolutely must keep your promise to your child. Or your grandchild. And you must discipline them for their disobedience, regardless of how sorry they are. You've heard all this, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You're not sorry. You just want to get your bottom whacked. That's why you don't want the discipline. You promised, if you do this, this is going to happen. Then you bloomin' well better do what you promised. Or they no longer believe you. And now they will sin with impunity. And God says, We're past the point of repentance. I am going to judge you regardless of what you do going forward. Because God always keeps his promises, and we should always keep ours as well. So God's got a word of judgment for the nation, but interesting, he has a word of grace for Josiah, verse 26. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you will say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against his inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declared the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace so that your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. And they brought word back to the king. Here's the principle. God is merciful and intimate with humble people who hate their sin and value him above all else. God is merciful and intimate with humble people who hate their sin and value him above all else. It's very clear that Josiah valued the Lord more than anything else. He saw sin like God saw sin. Sin bothered him. He tore his clothes in grief and sorrow over the sin in the land because he understood that sin was a direct attack on a loving father. Josiah cared about what God cared about. He cared about what God said. He cared about how God felt. Israel's sin against God broke Josiah's heart, and he wept and tore his clothes in grief. It's an interesting question. Does sin break your heart? I'm not talking about somebody else's sin. It's easy for us to get judgmental about that. Does our own sin break our heart? Because of what it does to our Father, does his heart matter to us? Does his opinion of what we're doing matter to us? It should. It should matter intensely to us. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. This is God speaking. He says, For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. See, God is the creator, but he's also the center of his universe. And he tells us what he requires to have a relationship with us. Sinful people must come to God in humility. Because sinful humans don't deserve anything but God's judgment. We cannot live with God as equals, right? He dwells in heaven, holy. We dwell on earth, sinful. But he promises to listen to and even live with what? The humble person. It's phenomenal that holy God would say, if you come to me with humility and you're broken over your sin, I will not only listen to you, I will live with you. I will take up residence with you, which is amazing. God wants a relationship with people, but that relationship's impossible unless our sin is dealt with. Now, God, and you know, God made a relationship with impossible by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus took our sin on himself, and he gave us his perfect righteousness. A proud person, number one, doesn't believe they're a sinner. Number two, they don't believe God is their sovereign king either. They believe that they're their own king. A humble person recognizes that their sin is separated from the God. A humble person wants to have a relationship with holy God, and therefore they choose to place their faith in Christ's payment for their sins because they want that right relationship with God. So the nation is arrogant and proud and going to be judged, Josiah is humble and broken over his sin and God extends mercy. So God is both perfectly just and perfectly righteous and perfectly holy and yet he's perfectly loving and perfectly merciful and perfectly full of grace and both of those are attributes of the Lord God. Verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. Of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people, from the greatest to the least, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the deeds of to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Here's the principle. God wants everyone to know everything he said, so they can know him and follow him with all their heart. God wants everyone to know everything he said, so they can know him and follow him with all their heart. So how does Josiah respond once he understands what God said? Well, he gathers the entire nation together. He reads the entire law, all five books, to the entire nation. He then leads the nation to reaffirm the covenant that the God had made with them on Mount Sinai. In other words, they promised to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They promised to keep his commandments Even though they had been committing spiritual adultery for 700 years, he leads them in repentance. He leads the nation back to the Lord, which is what spiritual leaders should do. See, Josiah understood that the primary relationship in all of life is your vertical relationship with the Lord God. Horizontal relationships with people are secondary. Your primary relationship in life is always vertical. It's always with God. Secondarily, it's horizontal. So after the nation reaffirmed their covenant to obey God, confessed their sins, promised to follow God, then they celebrated the Passover feast. For those of you, the Passover feast was, was with the feast they commemorated the exodus from Egypt. And this feast was celebrated in an amazing way. Second Chronicles 35 verse 18 says, there had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel Since the days of Samuel the prophet, nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated the Passover as Josiah did with the priests, the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is unique. In 400 plus years, they had not celebrated the Passover with this degree of conformity to the law of God. Josiah did everything by the book in terms of what the law said, how you celebrate the, the Passover he did. Not even David had celebrated the Passover like this. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that no king in David's line, including David himself, more closely approximated God's ideal for a king, and by the way, he wrote that down in Deuteronomy 17, than Josiah. Josiah, however, was not perfect. He had multiple wives, of course, which was contrary to God's ideal in Genesis 2. It's important to understand that while Josiah and the nation are repenting, confessing their sins, getting themselves back back right with the Lord, the world around them was changing. The two major regional powers were Assyria and Babylon. Egypt down south was a swing player. Assyria was on the decline. Babylon was on the ascendancy. Nineveh had fallen three years earlier. It's now 609. They fell in 612. So the last pocket of of military power for Assyria was concentrated in Carchemish. So Babylon now comes from the south of the Fertile Crescent. And they're moving north and west to Carchemish. They want to destroy the last remnants of the Assyrian army and get rid of this empire. The Egyptian empire way down to the south, they make a military expedition north to come to the aid of Assyria. So Egypt and Assyria are allied against Babylon. Babylon's about, I mean, uh, the Carchemish is about 250 miles northeast of Damascus on the Euphrates River. Now, Josiah is down here in Jerusalem, north of, of Egypt. And he fears that an alliance between Israel and Assyria, I mean, Egypt and Assyria is going to put him in the middle. It's going to put Judah in the middle of these two pinchers, Egypt and Assyria. So he decides to intercept Pharaoh Nico before they reach Carchemish. So Josiah's pro-Babylonia and Egypt is pro-Assyrian. So Pharaoh Necho sends messengers to, to Josiah, says, why are you fighting with me? I don't have a beef with you. My beef is with Assyria, right? It's not you. He even told Josiah, God, the God of Israel, told me to go north and to fight with Assyria. Now it's pretty clear that Josiah didn't believe Nico because he engages him in Megiddo, in the Jezreel Valley. So the Egyptian army probably traveled north from Egypt by sea. They land in northern Israel. They're traveling through the valley of Megiddo uh, by Mount Carmel when the army of Judah meets them in battle. It says Josiah disguised himself for the battle. He was wounded by Egyptian archers and died in Jerusalem at age 39 in 609 B.C. Now, this valley of Megiddo, of course, is where Armageddon will take place at the end. It's been a very famous site of multiple battles throughout history. And you look at Josiah's life and you think, what a waste. He died at 39 and seems to have died unnecessarily. If he would have not meddled in business that wasn't his... Maybe he could have lived beyond 39 and done so much more good, right? However, the sovereignty of God supersedes human decision-making. I've talked to people who said, if only I'd have done blah, 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 maybe they wouldn't have died. If only I'd have done blah, 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 maybe they wouldn't have gotten sick. Maybe they would have anyway. You and I are not God. The sovereignty of God overrides human decision making. So, God has decreed the coming judgment of Judah regardless of Josiah's reforms. That doesn't mean those reforms didn't matter. Many people came to faith, maybe for the first time under them at that point. But it's important to realize that Josiah accomplished everything God intended for him to do, even though he died at 39. And God's assessment of his life was that he did right in the sight of the Lord. Not on how long you're going to live. And I certainly don't know how well you're going to live between now and D-Day. But remember, at the end of the day, what other people think about you is not relevant. They have nothing to say about your eternal destiny. What God says about us is everything. So are we living day by day, moment by moment, week by week, to say, what's God's assessment of this decision? How does God think about what I'm doing? How does God think about what I'm thinking? You know, sin and righteousness are much more than actions. For those of us that have known Christ for a number of decades, or even a number of years, Most sin is not activity. It's thought. It's thought. It's the intent of the heart. It's monitoring your thought life to make sure that you're thinking biblically and you're thinking like God thinks so you will act like God thinks as well. There are absolutely biblical things you can do so that God will say, this person did right in the sign of the Lord. Number one, you need to know what he says, which means open his word. And then number two, you need to cry out to the Lord for power to obey what he said. And he will give you the power. If you're trying to do what he said to do in your own power, it will be failure after failure after failure. If you're asking him for strength to do what he wants you to do, he will give it to you. By the way, he did right or she did right in the sight of the Lord. That'd be pretty good on your gravestone. It was interesting. Uh, uh going home date was November 15th, so we always go out to the cemetery. And I read a lot of gravestones. I spent an hour out there. It's interesting. Those were real people who lived real lives. And you have a birth date, and you have a going home date. And the dash is everything in between. And all of them made decisions, Right? and I have no idea what those decisions were. But God does. And you see, what we put on gravestones is our assessment of that life. Beloved husband, father, grandfather, usually relational stuff. Sometimes a statement of faith. Sometimes you'll see the entire gravestone filled with language, words, some of which... I read and I thought, well, I don't know what they were thinking at the time. They were probably in a state of intense grief. And so, you know, we don't always think clearly. I can tell you that from many of you know that as well. The important thing is, is human assessment is not what's important. God's assessment of Josiah's life is all that mattered. And we are to fulfill God's purpose for him putting us on planet Earth before he says it's time to come home. Okay, let's review. One, repentance is more than sorrow over sin. It is a ruthless and relentless war against sin. Beginning in our own life, that's where the warfare primarily is. Number two, disregarding God's word leads to disaster. This is his world and his promises will surely come to pass whether you believe them, obey them, or like them, right? Number three, Holy God hates sin, and He will rightly judge those who reject Him and refuse to repent from their sin. That's His justice. He is perfectly just. But He's also merciful and gracious. Number four, God is merciful and intimate with humble people who hate their sin and value Him above all else. And lastly, God wants everyone to know everything He said so they can know Him and follow Him with all their heart. If you want to know Him, He's told you all about Himself right here in His book. You can know the living God. That should, number one, blow your mind. Number two, it's the most intoxicating thing in the world because God designed us to crave Him and to find Him because He showed Himself to us. Thank you for coming. Thank you for staying with us for the last six months through this. Now that you know, do.
1: MANA meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at MANA, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you
0: for joining us today. And now that you know, do.